Blog Talk Radio. Sweeping those streets I used to roam. Love the metaphor for the medical profession and what we face in the accountable care industry. Welcome, everyone, to This Week in Accountable Care. I am your co-host, Greg Masters. This Week in Accountable Care is brought to you by Zanate Media. And we are broadcasting today from San Diego, California, on Wednesday, September the 5th. 2012, and yes, that's right, one day before the deadline by CMS to submit your applications. So um, I am delighted to have an encore appearance by um, uh, uh, William J. DeMarco, who is a a long-term player in this industry and uh, quite the uh, uh, experiential guy going way back to the HMO Act back in the 70s and still around today. William J. DeMarco is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Pendulum Health Development Corporation, a national independent health information and management services company that specializes in healthcare delivery system redesign and transformation. And for more on Bill and his company, go to PendulumHealth.com. So with that as an opening, Bill, welcome to this week in Accountable Care. Nice to be with you again, Greg. Thank you for the invitation. Always fun to uh, to talk about what's happening new in ACOs. And there's certainly no shortage of stuff to talk about. <laughs> no, I think we've got an explosion on our hands here. Yes, yeah. yes yeah. indeed. So for those of uh, those of you who are not on Twitter or, or monitoring keywords associated with ACOs and accountable care in the blogosphere, we did a post today that. Uh, largely reflects uh, one of the line items that Bill has included in his newsletter at Pendulum Health uh, titled ACO Explosion. So if you want to read up on that, go to acowatch.com and check it out. But we're going to talk a little bit about the observation Bill is making. But first, let me set up the context here because we are less than one year into the accountable care organization domain, at least insofar as entities being recognized by CMS to operate under the terms of the Medicare Shared Savings Program as an ACO. And less than one year into it, we have gone from a market environment where many were sitting on the sidelines, some hand-wringing, if you will, uh, about whether they should or should not get involved, to the point now where it seems like the train has left the station. So it's a sea change in mindset from kind of sitting on the sidelines looking, considering putting a toe in the water perhaps, to all of a sudden this sort of explosion that we're talking about. So, Bill, where did you come up? Why did you uh, put this up front in your newsletter as ACO Explosion? Tell us a little bit about uh, your thinking here. 
are seeing lots and lots of activity in both private and in the Medicare shared savings space. And I'll talk about the Medicare shared savings space because I think uh, underneath all of this, there is a sea change and uh, people need to understand that both where the government uh, is pointing us and where physicians can probably lead this uh, really represents, I think, uh, a grand opportunity for most groups. Uh, what we're seeing happen uh, right now is that uh, there's about uh, 490 applications. Uh, people say, well, what are you doing this on the fifth for? Shouldn't you be working on applications for your clients? And I have to say, our clients are smarter than the average uh, client. They have all got their applications in already uh, for the September 6th deadline. And when I called uh, CMS just to double check on to make sure all of the computer systems did in fact translate all of the information to them, they told me they have about 490 of these applications applications sitting there. So we started thinking a little bit about that, saying, gee, that's about a 600% increase since last November when the final regs finally came out. But more importantly, uh, what this represents as part of policy is the ability for the government to really uh, put some uh, some risk and then some more risk uh, downstream upon both the ACOs and, of course, the Medicare Advantage uh, programs who are at-risk uh, partners with Medicare uh, for all of the Medicare Advantage enrollment. But when you add those two populations together, uh, we're estimating that about 20% uh, of Medicare beneficiaries are going to be connected through an ACO by January 1st, 2013. That's a pretty significant number considering ACOs weren't even here last November. But then you add to that the Medicare Advantage beneficiaries, which represents 27% of the Medicare population and, of course, is growing uh, right now. So it wouldn't be too far from the truth to say 50% uh, of Medicare beneficiaries are going to be receiving their benefits not directly from Medicare come January 1, they're going to be receiving their benefits through a Medicare contractor come January 1st. That's going to be different and it certainly has changed Medicare permanently. I can't, uh, I, I can't understate the significance of what you just said. It's a monumental shift in, in how one approaches your business and manages your customers. And, oh, by the way, that's before we even talk about what's happening on the commercial side outside the direct purview of CMS as well as what ultimately develops in the Medicaid sector. That's very true. Very, very true, Greg. The um, insurance companies are watching where these Medicare Advantage companies came from, and of course, that's a big and growing segment of the entire healthcare business right now because more people are receiving their benefits through Medicare and Medicaid than they ever have in history. In fact, uh, many of the estimates come back that there are more people on Medicare and Medicaid than there are on commercial, and that's a first for our country. Uh, so that's a, a huge market and growing. But now we're looking at the private side of that for a second and just say, well, if I'm running a private insurance uh, company and I'm seeing these ACOs come up online and I'm also seeing these ACOs eventually being full risk companies in three years, that means they're going to have to have an insurance license, which means they could be creating a provider-owned and operated health plan right in my backyard. And that's something that for a lot of these insurance companies uh, creates a little bit of heartburn 
so what's happened is the insurance companies uh, have decided they're going to get ahead of this by going to their private markets and saying we're going to sign up physicians and hospitals for our kind of ACO and uh, contracting with some of the larger employers in the area uh, to keep their business uh, in good place. This is very much like the high-performance network contracting that preceded all of this uh, uh, demo project and preceded all of the discussion on ACOs where physicians and hospitals were trying to uh, achieve that, uh, that higher level of quality so they could actually infer and sell quality with statistical significance that said to the physicians uh, that were part of the group that they were superior, but also said to the providers and hospitals and the employers, we are, prov we are superior providers for your particular uh, employees, for your particular groups. And, and that has worked. It's a great differentiation argument, but you have to have the data to prove it. Yeah, so there's a lot of history here. So let's come back to the private sector uh, in a little bit, but let's let's get granular for a moment. Now, we hear ACO, Accountable Care Organization, bandied about a lot, but they're really not homogeneous entities per se. Could, could you drill a little bit into uh, the ACO and maybe differentiate it for us? Well, not unlike the Wild West, we had the pioneer ICOs that came out first uh, about last December. Uh, and these are the uh, the usual suspects. These are the big, big large, multi-specialty, uh, health system-oriented, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Baylors, the Marshfields, these kind of groups that came out as pioneer ACOs. And reimbursement's a little different for them. The, 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 the costing and the sharing is a little different for them. But basically, they have the infrastructure in place. In fact, most of them have their own health plan and have been living on risk contracts for years. Uh, then we had uh, the, a, a series of other ACOs that came out, and the ones that where we've spent a lot of time is on the advanced pay ACO. In advanced pay means that the government would actually pay to a, a smaller provider group that wanted to form an ACO uh, a large upfront uh, payment of about $250,000 plus uh, $32 to $36 per uh, enrollee that would be attributed to that model and then another $8 per member per month ongoing for administrative costs. Uh, that can come out to a couple million dollars for a, a rural uh, clinic or a rural hospital and and that really gets them ahead uh, in, in moving, moving towards this ACO goal. Uh, the, uh, it's, it's formulated as a grant and or a loan, uh, meaning that the government loaned out a lot of this money, several billion dollars of it, uh, to these groups over the past year and uh, is expecting to be paid back. But in my discussions with the troops in uh, Washington, they said if the group doesn't pay the money back, uh, we're just going to declare it as a demo project and leave it alone. So this really is more of a grant program and a great opportunity for some of these smaller groups uh, to get uh, ahead of the game, if you will, uh, but also uh, differentiate themselves in the market. So uh, you've got really a range of sophistication here. The, the pioneer class is the more sophisticated group, and the advanced payment model would be the rural providers as well as what they're calling physician-led ACOs, correct? Well, they all are going to physician-led. That's exactly what the regs have said, and that's why I don't think you've seen very many hospitals lead this. Uh, the regulations were pretty particular, saying it needed to be physician-led. Physicians had to own 75% of the uh, of the entity. Uh, you was really seeing some very, very specific things that said, we know that physicians know where to create the savings in these markets. Therefore, we're going to give them the incentive to earn this designation right up front because they are the ones that can control and define quality. 
rather rather than having uh, the institutions or someone else doing that. Now, I say that with tongue in cheek because uh, now what we're starting to see, and what I've written in the newsletter too, is groups like Davida and others who are maybe vendors to a specific segment of the market, uh, they're seeing a value of going in and becoming an ACO or even buying up positions in some cases so they can become an ACO. So that has brought in a, a whole new dimension uh, in terms of who can and who cannot be an ACO. And of course, the insurance companies are out there on the Medicare side also saying, I want to get into this Medicare business, hence you're seeing lots of uh, acquisitions and mergers. Uh, I think Coventry's most recent uh, acquisition uh, by uh, by one of the groups saw by Aetna, and then of course Cigna's acquisition of Health Spring, which was a pure play Medicare Advantage. That's how they're going to learn how to manage this chronic care population. Okay, so let's just uh, uh, go back to just accept that the differentiation is from more or less sophistication. The pioneer guys are and gals are in the more. More sophisticated, therefore their delivery system more mature, perhaps more hard-coded, if you will, and on the advanced payment model side, it's 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 le- uh, of the less sophisticated or less mature marketplace. How do docs who are being approached in the advanced payment model, primary care physicians in particular, who can opt for only one ACO in their marketplace, specialists can sort of cross ACOs, but primaries have to declare. How do the primary care physicians in in other than the pioneer class make a decision about which ACO to join? It's a very, very hard decision for a primary care physician who can only join one ACO. And once that doctor signs that contract, that, that's it for three years. They cannot jump ship. Uh, so they really have to be careful and look at what they're signing. Uh, most of the time it will be either another physician or the hospital coming to the physician and saying, gee, you know, here, here would be a, a good opportunity for us to work together as an ACO and get that position under contract to actually move forward. Uh, the other side of this would be the uh, competing hospital who says, gee, I'd like to have more primary care, which means more uh, enrollees for me for this uh, ACO program, which means more revenue. Ergo, I'm going to go across the street and poach some of these primary care. Again, once they've signed for three years, uh, this can be a risk to some of the hospitals for some of these uh, uh, free players out there in the, in the primary care world. Uh, the way most hospitals are getting into this, of course, is uh, through their own primary care groups, which just about every hospital is into that business. But we have seen some groups where they've been approached by two hospitals in a metropolitan area, and the primary care group has been told, well, you join us uh, or else. And then another group has said, well, how can we work together? And the primary care group has said, I don't know which one I should join. Uh, and so finally, one of the hospitals came to them and said, well, if you'll wait for a year, we'll set our own ACO and bring you into it. And the physicians got together with the attorneys and said, well, that's worth something to forfeit an opportunity uh, to go directly with this hospital tomorrow that's got their ACO structure in place. We want $100,000 in order to forfeit that up. And I was amazed the hospital paid it. The hospital was happy to say, this is an option, but what it says is you will stay and wait for us for a year before signing any ACO contract. So that's how valuable some of these primary to specialty care relationships can be. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's got the wheels turning, I think, uh, for some of the other primary cares in other parts of the city as well. So you heard it here first. There will shortly be a derivative options exchange out there where you can swap out rights.
rights to primary care access to one ACO versus another. So maybe maybe we'll, maybe we'll see derivatives built on top of that in the not too distant future. Well, and a hundred thousand dollars would really be nice for some of these primary care physicians that would get them into the nuts and bolts too. So yeah. So let, let me ask you a question about in those states that are corporate practice of medicine, where a hospital can't directly hire physicians, but we'll get around that by subcontracting with a medical group or going the foundation route. If a hospital is the member and owns the medical group, but the medical group is the one that enters into a contract with CMS for the ACO, are they technically physician-led, or how does that work? Well, that's what they're supposed to be, meaning that the technic, that the uh, physicians should be uh, 75% owners, uh, and they should have uh, also the... Uh, oversight and control uh, as physicians to operate this company and to hire the uh, medical director and to hire the other people as a separate entity from the hospital. Some of the hospitals haven't got that yet, but I've seen this where hospitals and these new entities will fight with each other for capital. So if you make an ACO a department of your hospital, they're going to be fighting with radiology and with oncology for money every single year. You're better off to set it up uh, on the outside and you're better off to have the physicians actually on the board functioning uh, in a governing role, and that doesn't mean that the hospital can't have the rest of the 25% or have supermajority rules and regulations between the two on some issues, uh, but it does mean that the physicians need to lead this enterprise because they are the ones that uh, eventually that dollar split will come back to them, uh, and if they're with the hospital and the hospital is part of this, then they get some of those dollars too, but a lot of it has to go back to the physicians uh, to keep everybody very interested. So they can't enter into an ACO arrangement necessarily as a PHO. They have to do form a new corporation, and there might be, you mentioned supermajority, there might be Class A, Class B stock where the stocks are Class A and the hospital has uh, Class B and they're yada, 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 but technically they're physician-led as far as uh, CMS is concerned. That is correct. Okay, great. So you you also talk about this AHO. Uh, What the heck is an AHO? That's new to me. Well, that goes back to our discussion on private ACOs. A lot of these that I'm a lot of these insurance companies who say it's an ACO and you lift up the hood and you look underneath there, there's no there there. It isn't anywhere close to what the uh, requirements are in terms of uh, reporting measures and compliance and all the things that the Medicare shared savings are doing. It's basically a bundled payment program that the insurance companies come up with, with the hopes that if they pay it in a bundle, the physicians and hospitals will be more conservative in how they use their service. Uh, and there's, you know, there's both arguments on both sides. Do bundles really save money? And the answer is maybe. But the idea is it's not an ACO. It's not the idea of uh, the Medicare shared savings. They might share some savings because the bundle was less, but it isn't the traditional uh, ACO. And physicians get very confused saying, I've already signed up for an ACO with uh, Aetna or Blue Cross or Cigna or something like this. And the answer is, yeah, for the commercial population, but you haven't signed up for a Medicare shared savings. Oh, and that, and that is extremely important to point yes. out. Yes. Yeah, because, because it's not a homogeneous market inside of ACOs, and when you cross out of the the, uh, the Medicare shared savings program entirely and you're in the commercial space, it's entirely different. Entirely different. You can sign up, if you're a primary care physician, you can sign up for a dozen of these uh, commercial uh, ACOs. That doesn't really matter. Uh, the idea be unless that's what the insurance company wants. 
the idea here, though, is that you need to recognize that what these insurance companies want is they want you to be a high-performance physician. They want your data so they can actually analyze it, and they also want to be able to fill your practice with a lot of contracts about their insurance company. Uh, and what we think is happening, at least one of the, um, the meetings that I was privy to, the insurance company was saying, and the once we get to the point where they were at 30 to 40 percent of their practice, then we make them an offer to either buy the practice or go exclusive with us or both. I mean, if you own it, then you're obviously exclusive. Well, this is something that's an open door where physicians are going to say, now I'm handcuffed. I can't get out of this contract even if I wanted to because the majority of my business is coming from ABC Insurance Company and uh, I have to do exactly what they say or they might fire me. Okay, that's the other foot dropping that no one's really watching too closely. And of course, if they sell their practice to the insurance company, uh, that's a whole different situation too. And people are saying, really, are they doing that? And the answer is, yeah, United's out there. Uh, I can think of a dozen insurance companies. They're buying up primary care practices, and the investors are far behind them uh, buying up uh, primary care practices mm -hmm. because they know that uh, it's a shortage of primary right. care. And if you have control on that primary care link in your community, you can control specialty and hospital. We're kind of back to the FICOR model here. Bill, let me, are you, uh, your, is your mic rubbing up against your lapel or something? I'm getting a little bit of, yeah. Okay. You're is giving that better. That's much Good. better. Thank you. Thank you. So, so oh, that's awesome. Uh, incredible uh, information. Um, so let's uh, uh, spring off that one and let me ask you about, for, for instance, do you see now health plans like Aetna, United, uh, perhaps Humana, going out there and trying to essentially private label their ACO product line, or do you see them uh, maybe working more in terms of utility companies like what, what Bertolini's talking about over at Aetna? We're, we're, we see our future. He's saying the health plan model's toast. We don't see it being around. We're, we're not a health plan. We're an information services company that we enable, for instance, accountable care through IT infrastructure. Do you see the health plan world going in the direction of perfecting services as utility companies that provide provide uh, the back office support for locally branded provider-sponsored ACOs, or do you see them out there competing direct head-to-head -head in the marketplace in the OCO, ACO world? I think they're getting ready for health exchanges. In every place I go, insurance companies realize that when you put a ceiling, an MLR, and a ceiling on what I can charge, that is a uh, premium business that probably is going to be real hard to manage in the real near future. So what you're going to be doing is saying, I'm going to invest in something else that's going to help that business, but also going to be having some value in the market. Uh, on the right side of that ledger, it may be uh, buying physician practices because medical expense management is the most important thing for most health plans, or it may be on the other side of the ledger uh, going after IT companies, uh, Medicity, these other groups that have sold out to various insurance companies because they have a linkage with many hundreds and hundreds of uh, physicians, and this gives the insurance company, of course, a linkage with those phys same physicians now. So I think that you're seeing that model changing where the, the uh, majority of the dollars are not going to be risk dollars coming in through premium. It's going to be coming in through services 
Uh, and United had the same strategy. Gee, when Rich Burke was there, uh, this is many, many years ago. For those of you who don't know who Rich Burke was, he was the founder and president of Charter slash United Healthcare. But that was their uh, objective, was to eventually provide the supporting elements for uh, physician-owned health plans, uh, PHP franchises. And in doing so, they would shift away from having to be in the uh, premium risk business and be more in the uh, business of ASO, administrative services only, uh, and a lot of cost plus uh, businesses. And then, of course, they got into Medicare, Medicaid, which I had said earlier is is the growing segments of the marketplace. So uh, I'm seeing Aetna following what United's done, and certainly Cigna and everybody else is going to follow that direction as well, whether it's going to be a utility utility or whether there's going to be product attached to that. I suspect that for a while, at least, there'll be a product attached to that, especially as we go through the exchanges and they have to sell to individuals, not wholesale to large employer groups. This might be a way for them to actually market this back into the physician's offices and link up individuals electronically so that they are building uh, what we can call virtual networks and virtual employer groups. And, of course, the MLR rule is the uh, restriction that the small and large carriers need to spend at least 80 and 85% respectively of their premium on direct medical expenses. Otherwise, they are forced to rebate the surplus to their members. So uh, do you think in that case, uh, so it sounds like they're going to do a little bit of both. I mean, yeah. I I think they've got a long-term strategy, but I think the short-term strategy is to be less dependent upon that premium income and more dependent upon the administrative services only income. And that's making Wall Street people that I talk to uh, a little bit happier with investing in insurance companies that can do that. Maybe more of a guaranteed margin, even though it's Uh a a thinner one. (laughs) It's very flexible, but volume counts. Um, And some of these insurance companies, uh, you know, like you say, the uh, one of the quiet markets out there is Medicaid. Nobody's really watching what's happening. But if you go state to state, a lot of these Medicaid specialized HMOs are out there bidding for the entire book of state business. That's a huge influx of right. lots and lots of smiling faces. Yeah. Uh, Centene's probably one of the leaders in that market, and they are now bidding on the entire health system of Poland. Oh, my God. Yeah. How about that for unlimited market share? Yeah. So there you go. But Lillard, they had okay. an organization for years has run the entire system over there, and they just ran out of money. And so they're saying, how can we do this on a fixed budget? And Centene comes in and says, we'll do it for a not to exceed of X. Well, what government would turn that down? If you're the, if you're the uh, governor of the state of Florida and somebody comes in and bids on this and they say, hey, you know, they're going to make it a not-to-exceed number for Medicaid, boom, where do I sign? So these are uh, times that are really uh, looking to people that can actually market and manage that chronic care population. This is the new specialty in healthcare. It isn't gerontology per se, but it's the chronic ill population. And we have not seen this before, and a lot of people are really surprised that this is such a specialized area. Uh, We learned about it the hard way in the early 70s when we were guinea pigs for the Medicare uh, first cost contracts. But now you look at those industries and say, wow, those Medicare Advantage people, they can take a third of the cost of hospitalization right out of the system and put it in their pocket. What insurance company, what investor wouldn't want to see their insurance company, their, their uh, who they're investing in, actually get into that business? Right. So we're coming up on three minutes left in the broadcast. 
And you also mentioned, you just mentioned the health insurance exchanges, and you talk about co-ops, which sounds like sort of uh, the HMO Act 2.0 light, and then the resurgence of management services organizations. Talk a little bit about the synergies there. Well, I think you're seeing the physicians who are not organized, in other words, they're not part of a small group or big group or whatever. They're kind of looking at not so much IPAs as management service organizations where there's actually some uh, synergy going back and forth and they're buying discounts on things, everything from malpractice liability insurance right down to leasing cars in a group. So a lot of the uh, physicians are being pretty ingenious in how they can form a group without walls. Uh, that leads us to then a potential that they could get into to becoming a co-op or contracting with a co-op, and a co-op is by law a consumer-operated uh, health plan that is not-for-profit, has to have consumers on the board, and uh, in most cases, at least the ones that I've seen the government loan money to uh, have been statewide, and they're loaning money to the billions of dollars to get these uh, new not-for-profit co-ops for small group uh, out and operational to give everybody a run for their money in some of these markets where they've been pretty much closed up or closed out. Uh, as small employers uh, will tell you, their, their rates are 16, 20, 30 percent because the insurance companies do not want to raise the rates on their big guys. So uh, the small guys are paying for that, and now this gives us some competition. And that what that means. What that means simply is that a lot of the premiums for these co-ops will be subsidized by the government through the exchanges. So that's how it all fits together. So in one word, good or bad? Overall, could be very good if it's executed correctly. <laughs> it's that's, the big if. That, that, is, that is the big if. And uh, I just love your conclusion here about the perfect storm. And uh, I'll just direct uh, 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 listeners to the blog. I will put, put up the put up the uh, link to the newsletter when it becomes available. I want to thank you, Bill, for your time uh, and your insights today. You are absolutely, you know, people talk about event horizons uh, in a 24-7 news circle being rather short. You are one of those guys in which much elder wisdom is domiciled. So if you want to not do the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, learn how to do it differently. Learn from what's been done in the past. There are things to do and ways to navigate these white waters of health reform. So I want to thank William J. DeMarco of Pendulum Health Development Corporation for his time today. We are trying to do This Week in Accountable Care on a weekly basis, and next week uh, we will have another show. So, Bill, any concluding thoughts? The direction is clear. It's a topography that's difficult. There you have it. Thanks again, <laughs> Bill DeMarco. Thanks, everyone. Till next time. Bye now. Thank you. <laughs>